This is Other Voices, listening to viewpoints and people often not heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, talking to Dr. Lisa Campo Engelstein of Altamont, who was chosen by the BBC as one of 100 inspiring and influential women from around the world for 2019. She teaches students at Albany Medical College about the human side of being a doctor. In this week's podcast, she talks with passion about her work as a feminist bioethicist. She enjoyed meeting women from artists to athletes at the BBC Symposium in London and only regretted that World Cup winner Megan Rapinoe couldn't make it. Dr. Cambo Engelstein is herself a soccer player and also admires Rapinoe's advocacy for human rights. I am in awe of the guest that we have today. This is Dr. Lisa Campo Engelstein, and she has been named one of the BBC 100 Women, the Female Future. <laughs> and she happens to live right here in Altamont. So, welcome, Lisa. Thank, Thank you, you for so coming. Thank you so much for having me. I would just, I looked up your biography for the 100 BBC Women, and it was very succinct. I don't know if you wrote it, but I appreciate succinctness. It said that you aim to improve women's lives through finding new methods of contraception, and you also improve fertility for cancer survivors. And then you had a single quote by Margaret Atwood, a word after a word after a word is power. Did you choose that quote? I did choose that quote. And why? Tell me why. Well, Margaret Atwood is one of my favorite authors. I love to read. And as an academic who writes a lot and hopes that words will help change the future, I just thought it was the perfect quote for the female future that there are many ways we can try to engender a better future, and words is one of them. I agree with you. <laughs> so I would just like to hear, to start with, you gave a speech, and it had... It, it's centered on the idea of men, rather than just women, taking responsibility for contraception. And just mm-hmm. tell us a little about your research and how you got there, because I was really surprised with some of the things that your website <laughs> linked to. Sure. So we often, when we think about reproduction, we think about women, And it's interesting to look historically and understand that contraception was not always seen as women's responsibility. In many ways, it was seen as men's responsibility because they were perceived to be the head of household. And that shifted starting in the 1800s and then with the invention of the female pill that cemented this idea that contraception should be women's responsibility. And while I am 100% behind women having lots of options, I think the pendulum has swung so far that now the fact that women do the vast majority of contracepting is problematic because they then face all the burdens of side effects, money, time, psychological, social effects that they face. And so we need more options so that heterosexual couples can allocate this responsibility more fairly. And so if we could unburden women from this, that would be great. Also, Younger men are clamoring for 
options for them because they don't really have any. We have male condoms and we have vasectomies. Vasectomies are permanent. It's not a great option for a younger man. Condoms have all sorts of disadvantages, but one of the big ones is that in actual use, their failure rate is about 15%, whereas many of the female contraceptive options are under 1%. So they don't have good options for themselves. And so if we could develop new male contraceptives, I think it would help women, it would help men, it would reduce the number of uh, unintended pregnancies, which in this country are about 50%. Really? Yes. I hadn't realized that. Half of pregnancies in this country are unintended? Yep. People were not intending. So they may still be wanted pregnancies, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't people's plan. Plan. Wow. I hadn't realized (laughs) that number. You have some other stunning numbers in your work. Um, Looking around the world, you have a chart that just really surprised me. It's um, looking at the methods, and Mm -hmm. the biggest bar is for no methods at all, which is surprising when we're all around the globe facing all kinds of crises with too much population. And then um, I was also just surprised to realize that, tell us a little about what's been in the works for men having a pill, um, which I hadn't realized had been in the works for 50 years. (laughs) So it is sort of shocking to see that the number is 37% of women of reproductive age worldwide do not use any method of contraception. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. If we look at women in the global south, often there's not access. Methods are expensive. Um, In certain patriarchal cultures or in communities, it is sometimes hard for women to get permission from their spouses to use contraception. So, And that is not just places in the global south. That can happen in the U.S. and in the Western world as well. Um, so, but there, and there are lots of folks in the U.S. who don't use contraception either, either for all sorts of reasons. Um, but given the high rate of unintended pregnancy, introducing new male methods could help with that. Um, but they have been working on the male pill, as you said, for half a century. And they have all sorts of different methods they've been working on. They're working on pills, shots, gels. They're working on temporary vasectomies. Uh, they have all sorts of ideas. They have one that is called a clean sheets pill. And basically that targets the muscles surrounding ejaculation so that the man experiences an orgasm but does not ejaculate. So this one is especially cool because it would not only prevent pregnancy, but also the possibility of STI transmission, sexually transmitted infections. But you write that it's been unpopular because men have this sense that their maleness is defined by their ejaculation. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Right. And so there is this idea that having a large ejaculate is a sign of masculinity. And we see this in pornography. And so the idea that they wouldn't have that, they're less of a man. And that's been the problem in developing new male contraceptives is many of the side effects of them are similar to the side effects women currently face. Things like acne, weight gain, diminished libido. And women are expected to deal with those, but when they have those same side effects in men, they're seen as emasculating. And part of what's going on there has to do with certain gender norms about, you know, what makes a man a man. Um, but also this idea that, well, women experience pregnancy. So if we look at these side effects of weight gain compared to the risks of pregnancy, the side effects of weight gain are not as bad. I but think that's men a, don't have that 
pregnancy to have right. to worry about, so they're I less willing. I think, but I think that's a little limited. So it's what I think if we weigh physical risks, yes, right, with all sorts of physical risks with pregnancy versus the side effects of contraception, but the psychosocial, financial risks of having an unintended pregnancy last a lifetime. And so if we look at that, so beyond those 10 months, also it's important to know that there are physical risks for men if there is an unintended pregnancy. He may become stressed out. It may have effects on his body. He may lose sleep, all these other things. So I think the risk-benefit analysis needs to be more broad than it currently is of just looking at the risks of pregnancy. Interesting. (laughs) Well, another topic that you've done a lot with that was also, I think, very newsworthy is the way LBGQ people are treated by their medical providers. Mm -hmm. And I had done a podcast months ago with a woman out on the West Coast who's um, from Albany County that developed something called a Q card mm-hmm. um, so that people could bring this to their physician and kind of the physician could be educated <laughs> by looking at this card. But could you just kind of go over some of the things that your research found? You you have outlined three broad areas of problems that... Mm-hmm. Um, people face that are kind of shocking, I think. Um, Yeah, so we've done some research actually in in the Albany area. We interviewed folks who identify as LGBTQ um, and asked them about their relationships with with their providers. And they face a lot of inequities in healthcare um, and a lot of mistrust. And so things like transgender folks being misgendered. So going to see their doctor and having them use the wrong pronouns for them or suggesting certain types of treatment that don't align with their gender identity. And so these are the sorts of things that they face that are are unfortunately quite common. Also, there's just a sense that they're they're being treated um, like they're not a real person in certain ways. And so people, you know, they can sense the distance from their physicians and sort of the, the judgment that's passed on them for their quote-unquote lifestyle or the choices they make. And so that leads to a real breakdown in trust. Um, And then just access issues. I mean, that's a huge one as well, finding providers who will treat them with respect and dignity and also are familiar with treating folks in the LGBTQ community. Um, There's a lot of physicians and healthcare providers who don't have that sort of knowledge. And so as you mentioned, this cue card, a lot of folks in this community feel like they then need to educate their physician, which can be burdensome for them. So every time you have to go see someone, especially if it's for a broken arm, it has nothing to do with you know, your sexual orientation or gender identity, to say, oh yeah, and here's all this information. So we found actually that a lot of trans folks in the area were going outside of Albany to get their care because they were having trouble finding folks who could provide the kind of care they were looking for. And so this is a big issue that not just here, but around the country, where people are traveling far distances to see providers who they trust. So how do they find those providers? Is there like a network set up that people inform them? And where where are they? <laughs> Often it's word of mouth. Yeah, It's just talking to other people. Um, but there's also symbols that healthcare providers can you know, put in their window or on their desk, you know, having a rainbow flag lets people know that they are at least, you know, trying to be LGBTQ friendly. 
And it may not mean that they are fully educated and that's their main area of focus, but that they are trying to be an ally. And so I think it's really important for healthcare professionals to be allies to this community because they um, already face such ostracism and they already have so much mistrust of the system. And it seems like it's essential to have trust if you want to heal. I mean, there's so much that goes on in healing that involves trusting the person that's supposedly providing the care. Exactly. And this is not unique to the LGBTQ community. I mean, there's lots of distrust among various populations, African-Americans, among folks, depending on their immigrant immigration status. And so it's really important. And I, I teach at the medical college and we teach these sorts of issues of professionalism. That was what I was going to ask, because you are a teacher. Tell us about that. How, yeah. how do you instruct your students? What do you... So I am responsible for their non-science, non-clinical education. And so basically the way I and my colleagues frame it is as a good doctor in class. So they're learning all the science. They're learning all the medical information. But that's not enough to be a good healthcare professional. They also need the humanistic side of medicine because medicine is not just a science. It's also an art. And so how can they understand their patient, not as a robot, but as a person? So it's not just about the body in front of them, but also certain things, what social groups do they belong to? What sort of obstacles do they face? Do they have, you know, are they able to get from their home to the, the doctor's office? A lot of people face all sorts of barriers where they don't have transportation or they don't have access to healthy food. So I think understanding the person within their social environment is extremely important to providing good care for them. Yeah, it seems like what's happening a lot in modern medicine, we keep writing about like in the hill towns, a doctor's office closed because the large corporate entity that owned it was unhappy with the, you know, the volume. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't profitable enough. And it seems like the doctor's visits are getting shorter and shorter, and there's less time to sort of do those things that um, that matter for healing. So tell me just about your role as a teacher. Um, do you find students receptive to these ideas? Um, do you find some people resistant? Um, because really, medical school is producing the doctors mm-hmm. and... Um, What do you find on the front lines there in the classroom? (laughs) I do think there are a lot of students who really embrace this humanistic approach to medicine and recognize how important it is. There are always going to be people who are resistant. Um, And it is really challenging, as you point out, with some of the realities we face, that physicians have so little time with their patients. And often the way they're paid incentivizes them to spend less time and to order more tests. And sometimes what patients need is just a kind listening ear, right? They don't need more tests or more medications. They need someone who's going to express compassion and empathy. So we explicitly talk about that. And how can we do that even if you have five minutes here? And it's just sometimes it's little things. You know, it's calling the person by their name, shaking their hand, sitting down at eye level with them. And, you know, looking at the person in the eye rather than being on your computer the whole time. So there's little things they can do, even if they don't have a ton of time, even if they are working in this bureaucracy, to help the patient feel like, yeah, this doctor really cares about me. 
Well, I'd just like to hear about uh, your own journey getting to where you are. I see that you went to Middlebury College mm-hmm. and you were pre-med mm-hmm. and also philosophy. Yes. So you had like a medical interest to start with, mm-hmm. it looks like, but philosophy kind of <laughs> won out. But how, like what what got you to where you are and what you're doing today? Like how, because it's such a such an exciting field, but sort of so little known, mm-hmm. bioethics. Yeah, so I did, I was interested in medicine from the get-go, and then I took organic chemistry and decided, <laughs> oh, yikes, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do this more. Um, but I also, my first year in college, took a philosophy class, sort of on a whim, because I went to a liberal arts college and thought, this sounds cool, and I fell in love with it. It was just so interesting and thinking about these various arguments and and ethical issues. And bioethics is the perfect marriage of medicine and philosophy. So I pursued a PhD in philosophy, but specializing in bioethics and also feminist theory. And a lot of the work I do is surrounding gender um, and sexuality and those sorts of topics and reproduction. And so I feel like having that background in medicine is really important or in science. And then having that background in philosophy also helps me look at these medical issues from an ethics perspective. Yes, and I see on your webpage you define yourself as a feminist bioethicist. Mm-hmm. So just tell me a little about that. What, how, how does that defining yourself that way shape the things you look at and the way you look at them and the work that you do? Yeah, so I proudly identify as a feminist, and I think when I, sometimes when I teach, I, I tell students, you know, I know this word sometimes has a negative connotation for a lot of people, but I think it really just consists of two claims. You think that women experience discrimination or oppression in some sort of capacity, and you oppose it. And so if you agree with those two claims, congratulations, you're a feminist. Um, and so, you know, in a lot of my work, I think it's important to take a feminist lens because feminists care about power structures and injustice. And so it's not just regarding gender, but it's looking at things like race and class and ability or disability, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, looking at all those factors and how they influence healthcare and medicine. Because I don't think we can separate ourselves from those social factors and these issues of power and privilege and disadvantage. So that's why I think it's really important to bring that feminist lens to medicine and bioethics. I think it's great you're doing that. (laughs) Um, Another area that you're involved in that I thought was really worthwhile and fascinating is for people that have survived cancer Mm -hmm. and the reproductive issues that they face. Just tell us a little about your work there. Sure. So about 10% of cancer patients are of reproductive age. And often these cancer treatments that save their lives leave them sterile. And so many of these folks go on to live happy and healthy lives, but are infertile. And so the field of science has developed new technologies that can help them preserve their fertility before they undergo these treatments. Some of these have been around for a few decades, like freezing sperm. But freezing eggs is relatively new. It uh, wasn't until 2012 that they said this is more of an established technology, which was not all that long ago. And they are working on current techniques for children who have not yet reached puberty, so don't produce mature gametes. For them to be able to freeze their genetic material, their gonads or pieces of their gonads, and then be able to mature those in vitro so they can later on have genetically related children. And so we're trying to improve cancer survivors' quality of life. 
just like we do with other things. So if a woman undergoes a mastectomy, we offer her breast reconstructive surgery. If someone loses their hair due to cancer treatment, we offer them wigs. If someone loses their fertility due to cancer treatment, we can also offer them techniques now to preserve their fertility. And so much of my work in that area is looking at the various ethical issues involved there. And in particular, issues of justice and access to these sorts of treatments. Because these treatments, especially treatments in reproduction, are often seen as elective. Because we say things like, well, no one's going to die from not genetically reproducing. But my argument is much of medicine today is quality of life. So I have seasonal allergies. And I'm miserable when ragweed is in full swing there. But no one says, oh, that's elective. We're not going to give you allergy medication. Things like lower back pain. You could live with it. You could live with a broken leg. You could live with you know, poor eyesight or erectile dysfunction or all these things that we see as legitimate parts of medicine. And reproduction has been relegated to the side and saying, that's not real medicine. And I'm trying to make arguments to say, reproduction is a legitimate part of medicine, and we need to treat it as such. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that has been relegated to not being considered as important as some of these other things? I think it's conflated with women, and women's health care is often pushed to the side as well. And so we see that as, you know, we don't need to take care of that. That's women's stuff. And also we see reproduction as a private matter, quote-unquote private matter, so it's not part of health care. So historically, infertility was seen as a personal problem and not one that medicine should get should intervene in. And it was sometimes seen as a moral failing. It was, you have a barren uterus, right? Um, and so that's just something on you that, we, that medicine can't do anything about. That has changed historically. But notice, too, that we have this language to talk about a barren uterus, and no one talks about a barren scrotum, right? <laughs> and so uh, maybe they will now after this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's even encoded in the language. Exactly. Isn't that something? And historically, it was seen as a problem with women. And so doctors wouldn't even test uh, women's partners to see if it was a problem with male factor infertility because they just assumed it was a woman's problem. So I think the fact that this was seen as something to be with, you know, a problem just with women has made us just say, not important, not important. Isn't that something? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Well, um, so tell us, do you sort of plan out your life and what you're working on next? Do you have things that are like on the horizon that mm -hmm. you're interested in? That what, what are they? It's such a wide diversity of things that you're involved in. Yes, I mean, it, it's exciting. I, I love what I do. Um, and I'm constantly working on new projects. Many of them are in some of the same areas. We talked about male contraception and looking at some of those issues there, um, looking at, you know, still, why don't we have them? What can we do to move forward? And trying, I, some of my work tries to partner with advocacy organizations. Um, so I do some work with the Male Contraceptive Initiative. We're working on a project right now to raise these sorts of justice issues and to talk about even though we've made progress now, the Affordable Care Act mandates that we uh, cover female contraceptives. It doesn't cover male contraceptives. And so imagine now we have a straight couple who are deciding between a, a type of sterilization. If she has insurance, her insurance will cover tubal ligation. But his insurance may or may not cover vasectomy. And even if they do, there's a copay. And so they may choose tubal ligation just because it's cheaper. And so I think that's really problematic that in our law, we are already pushing people's hand to choose female contraception. And we're reinforcing this idea then that contraception is women's duties. 
So that's one project I'm working on. Um, I'm also doing, with fertility preservation, now uh, some of that work has expanded beyond just cancer patients to look at other populations who may want to use fertility preservation. So we're looking at groups like folks who identify as intersex, um, who may experience diminished fertility, uh, folks who identify as transgender, and some of the treatments they undergo may leave them sterile as well, and also age-related infertility for cisgender women. And so you may have seen in the news all about Apple and Facebook covering egg freezing for women. So some of the ethical issues at play there. So those are just some of the projects I'm working on on the horizon. Yeah, that's <laughs> just so huge and vast. I don't know how you sleep at night. <laughs> Maybe you don't. Um, but tell us a little about what it was like to be one of the 100 women. Did that? Did you get to meet some of the other women? And what was that experience like? Um, it was an enormous honor. Um, you know, <laughs> I, w- I thought maybe it was junk email or spam email when I got it at first. I thought, no, they got the wrong Lisa Campo Engelstein out there. Not that I know of any others. No, but, uh, when you put in your name, you're the only one. <laughs> yes, so. um, but, you know, I mean, it was just such a, a huge honor. And I did get to meet some of the other women. So tell us about who some of them were. Um, the, one of the are. women I did not get to meet, who is one of my heroes, is Megan Rapino, uh, a soccer player. And I'm a big soccer fan. I've been playing soccer since I was five. Really? Uh, yeah. And I just, I love her. And, um, you know, I think she advocates for social justice in addition to just being a superstar on the soccer field. So I really admire that. Um, and there's just other amazing women out there, uh, you know, like AOC was on there, so they had politicians on there. Um, Greta Thunberg is on there, too, for doing some of the great work she's doing. There's just amazing women. And they had women from all over the world of all ages. I think they had teenagers to women in their 90s. And some of them you've heard of and some of them you've never heard of. But just to meet these women and see the amazing things they're doing, it was so inspiring. Um because they're doing incredible things in so many different areas of the world on so many different topics. And it just gave me such hope. Well, hope is important. <laughs> yes. I really think that's what makes a difference. If we can have hope, we can yeah. move forward. But has this designation made a difference for you in your work? Did it raise your status in a way that helps you move forward in some of your projects? Or how has it affected you? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. It's, you know, again, a huge honor. And um, I think it does give me recognition, recognition within my field. Um, I think it also got my name out there in certain ways that it hadn't before. So then people start looking at some of the work I'm doing. Um, and, and I should say, much of the work I do is involving teams. So it's not just like a one woman show that we, you know, I rely on people from various disciplines to collaborate to get a much stronger, richer product in some of the academic writing and the work that I do. Um, but I think it got some of that work out there, which is great because lots of people have never heard of the idea of male contraception. And yeah, so- and <laughs> just your website, I'm just putting a plug in here. It's so readable, oh, you know, because I'd first tried to look up some of the abstracts on the scientific journals, which are a little slow yes. going. But you have it in a way that's very readable and accessible, and it, it's exciting. Well, thank you. I mean, um, I think it's important to be able to translate academic work to the lay public, because 
what's the point of doing this sort of work in the ivory tower if the only people that read it are, you know, three of your colleagues and your mom, right? Like it needs to get well, out your there. your mom is a big supporter. <laughs> she, she is indeed. <laughs> Give her a shout out right now. <laughs> Thank you, mom. <laughs> but I think it, this sort of work needs to get out there um, because I think that's how we can make change. Well, is there something in the way you were raised? I don't know if it was your mom that kind of inspired you to to be a feminist and to mm-hmm. kind of be on new frontiers like this. Yes, I you know I think both my parents and my mom you know especially identifies as a feminist, and I think she instilled that in me. Um, and I, my father always liked to play devil's advocate with me, which I think pushed me to really think critically about ideas and be able to support difficult positions. And so between, you know, this feminist upbringing and being able to support your ideas, I, you know, that just made me ripe for being a philosopher <laughs> and a feminist bioethicist at that too. So, you know, I owe a lot to them for, for all that to, to be where I am today. And, and again, to the community I'm a part of, um, and my colleagues who have really been wonderful and supportive. So are these colleagues local at Albany Med or do you like have a network of colleagues that are across the country or both Mm. I have colleagues here at Albany Med and then I have colleagues across the country and internationally that I work with and I think that's what leads to again a really robust product or just really robust conversations is talking to people with different ideas and different backgrounds. So what other countries do you work with? What other people in other countries? I'm working on a project right now with someone from the UK. Um, I'm involved with the Oncofertility Consortium, which is based in Chicago, but has global affiliates. And so I worked with someone from Brazil on a project there. So just around... What was the Brazil project? It was working on fertility preservation. And so... They're trying to expand fertility preservation for cancer patients in Brazil and in other countries where they don't have the same sort of access to these technologies or the same sort of money, because often these technologies are extremely expensive. So in countries that don't have the same level of resources or don't have as many infertility, fertility clinics, it's really hard to find people and the resources to be able to do these technologies, to freeze one's gametes. Wow. Well, our time has just gone so fast. Do you have any closing (laughs) thoughts that you'd like to leave people with? I mean, maybe a fitting way to end is is the Margaret Atwood quote again, and to tell people that words matter and to use their words to engender the change they want to see in the world. Thank you. You got a bit of Gandhi in there, too. (laughs) Yes, as well. I tried. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. Thanks for having me. It's so fun talking about this stuff. Hi, this is Marcello Yaya. I'm sometimes called the digital editor here, and I produce these podcasts. I just wanted to quickly say that before these podcasts are recorded, there's a lot of work that Melissa does and puts into them to make them as good as they can be, both in choosing the guests and researching them. And I wanted to ask if any of you can think of somebody who would be good for us to interview next, just send us an email or give us a phone call podcasts at altamontenterprise.com or 518-861-4026, extension 102. Thank you.